Well, I said to you uh, several weeks ago, and I want to remind you uh, this morning, that the Bible's purpose is not so much to show us how to live a good or exemplary life, but to show us how to meet God, whose grace we need in order to live real life. I think that's very important for us to understand. It, the Bible really ultimately shows us how God comes down to a people that most of us don't even recognize until some point in our lives when we cross the line of faith how much we really need God's mercy and His grace. And yet, in spite of the fact that we don't really understand how much we need it, uh, God does, and he freely gives us that grace anyway. And that, that really is the grand narrative of Scripture. That really is what it comes down to. And I, I really believe that there is no other life uh, in Scripture that so vividly portrays that truth uh, than the life of uh, Moses. Uh, the adventures of Moses' life, if you're familiar with them, and, and most people are, whether or not you're a follower of Jesus or not, because a lot of us, we grew up, right, on a Saturday or a Sunday night, two consecutive Sunday nights, watching the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, we saw it. We saw this happen. Uh, as poor as the cinematography might have been when we were kids, we, we saw this happen. And, and so we understand that the adventures of his life take place mostly under a hot desert sun, and very often under uh, the wonder just beyond the shadows of those Egyptian uh, pyramids. Here's some things that I want to tell you as we begin this morning. This brief study that we're going to do of the life of Moses this morning uh, traces uh, another thread that ultimately leads uh, to Jesus. Uh, the life of Moses, in fact, and the life of Christ have many uh, similarities and parallels. I want to give you a few uh, this morning. Moses is the main figure in the Old Testament. Jesus is the main figure in the New Testament. Moses was born while his people were under uh, suffering uh, through the tyranny of a cruel leader. Uh, Jesus was born under very similar conditions. The leader of the land when Moses was born was attempting to kill all baby boys and the same thing was true when Jesus was born. Moses' mission was to redeem his people from slavery uh, to Egypt. Uh, Jesus' mission, however, was to redeem all people from our bondage and slavery to sin. Uh, Moses, and this is very significant, I wish we had time to dwell on this this morning, we don't, but Moses taught the people about the need for a Passover lamb. And what is so incredible is that when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is ultimately that lamb that would permanently remove uh, the penalty, the price for sin if we trust in Christ alone as our Savior. And then lastly, Moses lifts up a, servant, a serpent in the wilderness uh, so that people might be healed uh, physically after they were smitten with a plague because of their disobedience and their grumbling and complaining. Jesus was lifted up on a cross uh, that we might be healed forever from our sin. It's a really cool thing. And since the theme uh, of our series is the thread that we see weaving through Scripture, it's very important that we show you those parallels So here this morning uh, as uh, we get started. Uh, well, once we hear and understand uh, these stories about Moses, and, and many of you uh, maybe think that you know them, 
Um, there's several of you that are new followers of Jesus, and there'll be some material this morning, and it's new to you, and that's a, that's a great thing. But here's what's really awesome. As you study the life of Moses, we come to understand that these incredible stories are unforgettable. In fact, if you think about it this way, for Jews, uh, this is the story that defines their very existence. Moses leading these Hebrew people out of the bondage, out of the tyranny they were experiencing uh, in Egypt, really defines them as a nation, their existence. If it were not for the Exodus, they most likely would not exist as a nation. It's the rescue that made them God's people. And then for those of us who are here this morning and we are Christ followers, we're Christians, uh, the story of the Exodus, of Moses delivering uh, his people out of the bondage, out of the slavery that they experienced in Egypt... For Christians, this is the gospel personified in the Old Testament. It's really God's first great act of redemption. It's the story that gives every captive, and we are all this morning, we were at one point in our lives, maybe some of us are still, it gives every captive, those of us that are bound to sin, it gives us the hope of freedom. That's what these stories do. So when we come to the book of Exodus, and you have your, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me to Exodus chapter 1, and I'm going to take you on a rapid, rapid, rapid tour, all right? Uh, not just of Exodus, we're actually going to end up in the book of uh, Numbers. We're not going to go by verse by verse, don't get scared, all right? It's snowing out anyway, it's terrible, treacherous weather out there, we need to be here anyway. When we come to the book of Exodus, Jerry last week uh, did such an incredible job of giving you an overview of the life of Joseph. When we come to the book of Exodus, it's important to understand that Joseph and all of his brothers and that entire generation, they're dead. And just as God had promised, the people of Israel had multiplied greatly. In fact, in verse 7 of chapter 1, it says that they were strong and the land was filled with them. They'd had lots of babies, and those babies had grown up. And the problem was that unlike the favor that existed between Joseph and the powerful leaders of his day, chapter 1 verse 8 says that there was a new king who didn't even know who Joseph was. And he was concerned that there were so many people of Israel. In fact, he thought that there were so many of them that they might actually join up with other nations and might come up against his people. And so under his leadership, the people of Israel were enslaved. And they were used to uh, build great cities, and uh, the more the people were burdened, the faster the number of them grew. The Egyptians would make their lives harder and harder, and they used them to make mortar and bricks in the hot sun. And because they kept multiplying, the king took desperate and ruthless measures to control their population. At first, he instructed two midwives, and if you've never read the story, read it in Exodus uh, chapter 1. He instructs two midwives that whenever <clears throat> there was a Hebrew woman that was giving birth, uh, they were literally to abort uh, that birth. Uh, if it was a little baby boy, they were to kill that baby boy. And uh, come to find out, instead of that, the Hebrews continued to multiply, and the king comes back to them and says, why didn't you do what I told you to do? And their answer is in verse 19, uh, the midwives say, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. I like that, right? It's like some of you who are southern women say, we southern women aren't like those northern women, all right? I'm not going to debate that with you, all right? That's what these midwives said, though. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous, and they give birth before we can even get there. 
That's why all these little boys are there. You know, before we could abort them, they just have the babies. Pharaoh's response in, in verse 22 is that every son that is born to the Hebrews should be thrown into the Nile River and only the girls should live. And you think just for a moment, especially on this day when we think about the sanctity of life, the turmoil of these people, God's people, knowing that if as a young mother, as a young couple, as a father, that if, if my wife gave birth to a little baby boy, he would be viciously thrown into a river, most likely to be eaten by crocodiles. What tragic oppression the people of Israel faced at the hands of an incredibly wicked man. God's people obviously need a deliverer. Someone sent by God to liberate them from this bondage that they're experiencing under the Egyptians. And they'd been promised this. In fact, you remember that as we, as we studied in Genesis, the life of Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 says, And the Lord said to Abraham, <clears throat> Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. They knew if they were familiar uh, with what had been prophesied and written that this was going to happen, verse 14 says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And God had promised that he would send a deliverer. Now I want to stop for just a moment, and I want you again to notice the thread, that that's exactly what God will do about 1,525 years later. God will do that for all of mankind, us included. He'll send his son Jesus, just like he did Moses to be a deliverer physically of his people out of bondage. God will send his son Jesus to be born of a virgin in tumultuous times. His life should have been taken, but God will send his son Jesus to liberate us from the slavery and the penalty of our sin. Do you see the thread as it makes its way through Scripture? In chapter 2 of Exodus, we read that a couple had a little boy. And we don't read their names in this particular text, but later on we find out that the mom's name is Jochebed and the dad's name is Amram. And they have a son, the text said, and they believe him to be a fine child. Now, I find this kind of humorous as I read this text. I've never been to a hospital to see the birth of a newborn child, and you go in there and you say to the parents, Wow, and they go, ah, mm. <clears throat> right? We had a couple in our church that had a baby this week, and I saw everything going around on Facebook. Cute baby, but, you know, you just go. But these parents were all convinced, right? Our baby is the finest. And that's what Jacobed was like. It said, she said, he's a fine child. And so she hides him for about three months. Undoubtedly, uh, this wasn't the only instance of this happening. It had probably happened before until she can hide him no longer. And during those three months or maybe even before that, she hatches a plan. She comes up with a plan. She makes a basket out of papyrus. She covers the bottom of the basket, uh, coats it with tar, and she places the little boy in the basket and she uh, puts it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. Now, moms, can you stop and just imagine for a moment taking your little baby and having enough trust, enough confidence that you place that baby in a basket and you gently push it out into the Nile River. I wish we had time to stop right there 
and talk about the implications, the ramifications of that decision of faith that Jochebed made that day. You can only imagine the pain in her heart as she watches that little boy float away. No doubt for many days she'd been thinking about it, but now that day had finally come. And now the hope begins. She wonders, will it actually work? Will this plan actually happen as she wants it to happen? And so this infant begins to float along the bank of the Great Nile River, and she sends Moses' older sister, who we later find out is named Miriam. She sends Miriam down, a little further down the bank of the Nile River there to see what's going to happen. And at that moment, the daughter of Pharaoh just happens to come out to bathe. You see God's sovereign hand there. As Pharaoh's daughter comes out to bathe, she notices the child in the basket. She notices that it's a Hebrew child. Uh, Miriam steps out and asks her, do you want me to find somebody to nurse this child for you? It's so awesome to read this text and see how God's hand is just maneuvering people just where he wants them to go. And she says, well, yes, that would be awesome. Can you find a Hebrew woman who would nurse this child for me? And Miriam says, I think I know someone. And she goes and takes uh, uh, little baby uh, Moses uh, to her mother, uh, Jochebed. And you'll notice in verse 9 what Pharaoh's daughter says. She says, take the child and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Can you imagine it, moms? Not only do you get your baby, but you get paid to nurse your baby. God's sovereign hand is so awesome. And so uh, she pays, uh, she's paid to have those moments with her son, the one whom God had chosen to deliver his people from their bondage that they had endured for 400 years plus. And she would nurse him, she would raise him for approximately two to three years until he was weaned and Then in verse 10, it says that the child grew older. As the child grew older, she brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he becomes her son. Can you imagine the pain in her heart? Imagine those of you that have sons that are back there in our children's ministry right now, and they're two, three, four years old. Can you imagine taking them? Well, probably probably some days you can't imagine taking them and saying, here, take them, do something with this child, all right? But on, but on most days, all right? Can you imagine the pain that was in her heart when she took him to Pharaoh's daughter? And the Bible says that Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, Moshe, because she said, I drew him out of the water. And that's what his name means. Moses grew up when he was trained in Pharaoh's courts. And from the age of 20 to 40, um, Acts chapter 7 and verse 22 tells us that he was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in words and deeds. He had the best of everything. He had the Ivy League education. He wore the finest clothes. He experienced everything that a, that a wealthy young man living in the king's courts would have experienced. In fact, according, according to the uh, Jewish historian uh, Josephus, he becomes the general of the Egyptian army. And he actually leads a successful campaign, according to Josephus, against the Ethiopians. Powerful, powerful man. However, he knows he's a Hebrew, and about the age of 40, he has to flee Egypt to escape punishment because he sees an an Egyptian taskmaster that is wrongly beating one of his brothers, one of his his fellow Hebrew slaves, even though uh, Moses is not portrayed as a slave. And 
He kills that man, thinks he gets away with it, realizes that he doesn't, and his journey finally takes him to Midian, where he ends up working for a man named Jethro. He soon marries one of Jethro's daughters, whose name was Zipporah. And here's the interesting thing, that Moses will spend the next 40 years of his life caring for the sheep of his father-in-law on the backside of the desert. And you know what's further interesting is that we have no indication that Moses uh, was anything but content with his humble life uh, as a shepherd. But God obviously would have a much bigger plan for his life. Um, One day, and you can imagine uh, Moses out there in the desert, and for 40 years he's done nothing but, but work with sheep. We've talked in the past, especially when we've talked about the ministry of an elder and how uh, God refers to us consistently throughout Scripture. He refers to us, not just you, us. He refers to us as sheep, and I've given you some descriptions of sheep. Uh, sheep are stupid animals. Um, they don't have personality. They're, they're needy. In fact, uh, uh, they tell us that if a, a sheep falls over on his back, he has no way to get up at all. He'll just lay there and literally die unless somebody comes and props him up. That's how God refers to us, to you and I, as sheep. That's the way that Moses was spending his life taking care of sheep. And one day he's out there. Remember, there's, there's, there's no iPod. Uh, there's no smartphone where he's sitting there and he's looking at YouTube videos going, this is awesome, right? I watch the stupid sheep, but I get to view all these YouTube videos. I, I, I get to do things with pictures and, and I get to listen to my music and watch movies. And this is really awesome. No, he's just sitting there watching stupid sheep. And all of a sudden in the distance, he sees a bush that's on fire. And that bush is on fire and he notices that's very different. That normally doesn't happen in the desert. So he walks over uh, to the bush and uh, to make a very long story, very short It's the voice of God that begins to speak to 80-year-old Moses. And God tells Moses that he's aware of the affliction of his people at the hands of the Egyptians. And he has a plan for Moses to go and to deliver his people from their situation. Moses' response, chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Who am I that I should go before Pharaoh? No doubt he remembered back 40 years ago when he'd taken the life of Uh, that man and and knew that Pharaoh was after him at that point and wondered if I go back will I be held accountable for that my life could be in danger but he just simply says they won't believe me if I go back that you've sent me and so in chapter 4 God gives him two signs he's going to be with him when he goes and uh, the first one Moses has a rod a long walking stick you've seen it in the movie right this is just like that And uh, God says, take your rod, take your walking stick and throw it down on the ground. And when he does, it becomes a snake. I've thought about that. You know, the way that I hate snakes, it would have been at that point that I would have left the sheep in the desert. I would have gone running when he saw that. And God says, not only throw it down and it becomes a snake, but God then says, hey, take the tail of the snake and pick it up again. How many of you, your, your, your belief, your faith, your trust in God, it would have ended right there, right? You never would have done that. There would have been no deliverance of the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt, right? He picks it up, it becomes a rod again. And then next, God tells him to take his hand and to stick it in his cloak, and he sticks it in his cloak, and God says, pull it out, and he pulls it out, and it becomes leprous. And God says, and you can imagine that Moses is just totally freaking out. I mean, this was no ordinary day on the backside of the desert taking care of sheep. 
God tells him to stick his hand back inside of his cloak. He sticks his hand back inside of his cloak, pulls it out again, and it's just like it was before. And God says, you can do it. I'm going to be with you. Moses makes one last effort uh, in verse 10 to convince God that he's not the right man for the job. He reminds God that he's not eloquent, which I think is really interesting because in Acts we read that he was schooled in, uh, in, in speech, that he had, he had wisdom and was very familiar with language, probably just an excuse. And so God says, hey, turn around, and here's Aaron. You know, I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? Here's Aaron walking to the dead. Why, why would he come? Probably most days he had not come to visit his brother Moses out there herding his sheep. He looks up, there's Moses. God says, here you go. Aaron will be your mouthpiece. Enough with the excuses. You're going. Moses is about 80 years old when God first makes contact with him and calls him for this deliverance mission that he had planned for him. And God's entire plan for Moses' life will take place in the last third of his life. 80 years of his life, really he's done nothing significant other than herding sheep for 40, living in the king's courts and enjoying all of that for a time, and murdering a guy. And now at age 80, God says, I've got a plan, I've got a purpose for your life. Now, <clears throat> We're, we're really short on time this morning, and I, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I, I do want to take the moment to say that there are some of you here, and you're my age, you're a little bit older, and you begin to buy into the idea that uh, you've wasted a lot of your life, and, and a lot of your life maybe has, as far as spiritual things go, according to what God says is important, uh, you've wasted and not used your life in a meaningful, constructive way in view of eternity. If Moses' life teaches us anything, it teaches us this, that it's never too late to do what God wants you to do, to give him complete control of your life, to submit to his perfect will and his plan for your life. I'm so glad that there are a number of you that are in that season of your life that are here at Northwest, and you've not bought into the idea that God just gets finished with us at a certain point. And when God's finished with you, he'll let you know that. And you say, well, how will he let me know that? He'll come or he'll take you, Right? And that's when he'll be done with us. But up until that time, God has a plan, God has a purpose for your life. I'm thinking a lot about that because I'll be 50 here in just a few weeks. I know I don't look it, but I will be, believe it or not. And you know, when I turned 30, I thought, well, you know, my life's probably not half over. 30 times 2 is 60. A lot of people live till 60, right? I turned 40 and did the math and went 40 times 2 is 80. I went and a lot of people live, you know, great things with medicine. A lot of people live till 80. You get to 50 and you start doing the math and you go, times two. Yeah, I don't even know if I want to be 100. <clears throat> I mean, I'm not sure my wife wants me to be around at 100, right? <laughs> imagine me at 50. Imagine what that might be over an extra 50 years of just, that's not really that. <clears throat> it wasn't meant to be that funny, exactly. <clears throat> Here's the point, though. God's never done till he's done, and you'll know when he's done. And I want to challenge some of you that have made mistakes. You're 50 years old, you're 60 years old, and you've wasted and squandered a lot of your life. It's not too late. Some of you that are here today and you think that your life might be shorter than, than you think it ought to be, you have today. I want to challenge you to use every moment of every day for God's glory. Moses journeys back to Egypt with his brother Aaron, who acts as a spokesman. And real quickly, and I, and I wish we could park here, but we can't. 
Their confrontations with Pharaoh first lead to him uh, oppressing the people more and more. They work harder and harder. Ultimately, it uh, requires ten plagues on the people of Israel to, or on the people of Egypt to be brought in order that uh, finally in chapter 12, Pharaoh decides after 430 years that he's going to let the Israelites, the Hebrew people, go and they take off. I wish we had time to stop here for a moment too because in chapter 12 we see Moses and how he institutes the Passover, which is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what ultimately happened when Jesus uh, is born and then suffers and bleeds and dies and sheds his innocent blood on the cross uh, that we might be passed over. Our sin might be covered as a result of his death. In the Old Testament, the most epic illustration of God's authority is this right here, the Exodus. In fact, um, any time that an Old Testament writer, all the way through the Old Testament, will refer back to the Exodus. In the New Testament, it's the resurrection. New Testament writers, as you remember, especially the Apostle Paul, will refer consistently and constantly back to what? Back to the resurrection. It's as if they are saying that they want to remind the people that if God can take millions of people out of bondage, if he can take them up to the banks of the Red Sea and part the Red Sea and they can walk across on dry ground and after 430 years he can can deliver his people. If God can do that, then God can do anything. Just like the writers of the New Testament would say, if God can raise his son Jesus from the grave, If God can rise him up out of that grave and now he is ever living and interceding for us in heaven, if God can do that, my friends, God can do anything. And it must have been quite the scene as millions of those people exit Egypt. Now here's what's interesting if you do a little geography lesson. If you want to travel directly from Egypt to the promised land, uh, to the edge of Canaan, you'd travel what's known as the way of the sea from Egypt. And that's about 175 miles. It's a direct route. It's widely traveled. In fact, some of you have been there and you know it's very scenic. You looked on one side and there's the sea and you look on the other side and there's uh, the mountains. And um, at uh, 20 miles a day, it takes about a week and a half to get there from Egypt. If you allow for the fact that they had livestock with them and uh, children, it might take up to a month, but God takes them on a very uh, different path. Have you noticed this to be true in your life, that God's GPS oftentimes does not choose the shortest route, right? When you get your GPS out and it gives you opportunities to choose, you know, which kind of routes you want to take, it's as if God always presses the button that says, I'll take the longest route. And here's why I believe that God does that, because God is most interested most of the time on the journey rather than the destination. For us, we want to get there. It's as if God consistently says to us in our lives that that I'm not as consumed with where you're going as I am with what you are becoming. And you see, God recognizes that it is the journey, it is the process that takes us to where we want to be and where God knows we ought to be. And so God takes them on a different path, and they go from Egypt to Mount Sinai. They spend about a year at the foot of Mount Sinai, and that's where God gives them the Ten Commandments. They learn about sacrifices and offerings uh, to atone for their sins. They also get instructions. God gives them instructions on how to build the tabernacle. 
He gives them a cloud to guide them during the day and a fire at night. And I'm telling you, I wish we could take time to park there because if that's not enough that you go, there's a God. I mean, imagine there's this cloud that's following you around all the time. It's always right in front of you. Sun goes down, there's a burning, blazing fire. God's doing all of this. It's going to take them ultimately about 40 years to get to the promised land, even though it was about a 10-day journey. Why? Because it's going to take them that long to learn who they are in light of who God is. Here's what I want you to notice, and, and we're going through this so quickly this morning, the life of the central figure in the Old Testament. I want you to notice this. Let's hone on this as we kind of begin our descent. They're hardly out of uh, the driveways of Egypt. On their journey to the promised land, to Canaan, after being 430 years in bondage, and it happens. Just outside the borders of the, the city limits, it happens. This attitude that's going to be displayed over and over and over again over the next 40 years as they wander in the wilderness, it starts now. What is it? They grumble. They whine. They complain. In fact, one Bible teacher put it this way, they were a sharp pebble in the sandal of Moses. I like that. They begin to whine right away. In fact, as they get outside of uh, uh, the city limits and they begin their process of their journey, uh, they look to their backs and who's there? It's Pharaoh and his mighty armies. And they look ahead of them and it's the Red Sea. And they begin to cry out to Moses, have you brought us out here to die? Were there no graves in Egypt for us to be buried in? It would have been better for us to stay there. And you know how that story ends. They get to the Red Sea, God says for Moses to stretch out uh, his arms, his rod, and they walk across on dry ground. They get to the other side, the water comes back together, and all the mighty armies of Pharaoh, all his chariots, all his military might is destroyed. I find it interesting, they get to the other side in chapter 15 of Exodus, they do what? They sing a song. It's really cool. And in fact, we should make a song out of that uh, chapter. And I guarantee you, it wasn't a Gregorian chant. They were singing, they were dancing, it was loud. They were talking about how great, how awesome their God is, just like we were a few moments ago until we get to the end of the chapter. Chapter 15. They get to verse 24, they get to Marah, and it says the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? If you're parents, you've been there with your kids, haven't you? They've asked for something, you give them that thing, and that thing doesn't satisfy, right? I want some ice cream. I want some some ice cream. You get them the ice cream, and I want some chocolate syrup. I want some sprinkles. That's what these people were doing. What shall we drink? Moses cries to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log and he threw it in the water. And the water became sweet, that bitter water. And in chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, the whole congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They said, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. 
in the land of Egypt. Now listen to the description that they give in verse 3. When we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full. Wow. Selective memory. These were the people that for 430 years were in bondage. A good portion of that time, their little boys were being thrown into the Nile River and they were being consumed by alligators. These were the people that were working under a hot desert sun. They had been delivered from all of that. And they say, when we were back in Egypt, we sat by meat pots and we ate bread till till our stomachs were full. It makes it sound as if they sat around hibachi grills. And they ate till their stomachs were full. You can just picture it, can't you? Several flat panel TVs. They're watching all the college games. They got their lawn chairs, a big grill's going. All kinds of meat from the meat house that's out there on the grill. They're being served by the Egyptians. They're saying, that's the way it used to be. Why have you brought us out here? One last example we find in Numbers chapter 11. They get to verse 4. I want to read it in the message. I think the message really gives us a picture of this. It says, the riffraff among the people. Which, by the way, you don't want to be part of the riffraff. All right? That's a select little group of people that's just kind of stirring the pot just a little bit. The riffraff among the people had a craving. Soon they had the people of Israel whining, right? It always starts with a little group and leads to a big group. Some of you, by the way, can be those little people, and you can influence for good or for bad. The riffraff here influences for bad. And they say, why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt. And you notice in the text, it says in the message, I'm not sure what the words are exactly in the ESV, but it says, and we got it for free. Well, sure, you go to prison, they'll give you a free meal, right? To say nothing about the cucumbers and the melons. I don't care anything about the cucumbers. Depending on the melons, that would have been good. The leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But nothing tastes good out here. And you can, you can just hear them saying it, can't you? All we get is manna, manna, manna. That's all we get. Manna. What is this stuff anyway? We didn't have this stuff in Egypt. It's amazing when you consider all that God had provided for them. Water from a rock. Quail. Deuteronomy says, this is very interesting to me, I'd never paid attention to this until just this week, but the book of Deuteronomy repeats that that God even causes their clothes and their shoes not to wear out as fast, so that they'll be properly clothed, and walking on that hot desert sun, their feet won't get burned. He'd rescued them from the slavery that they were experiencing in Egypt, and they whine, whine, whine. Starts with a few spreads to the masses, and that's how it generally happens. One family member, one co-worker, one team member, one church member, and it spreads like a contagious disease. It becomes toxic. Moses hears the whining. Moses begins to whine to God. Why are you treating me this way? Why am, what am I supposed to do for these people who are whining to me? Give us meat. We want meat. I can't do this by myself. It's too much, all these people. If this is how you intend to treat me, do me a favor and kill me. So at that point, if I'm God, I go, you get your wish. That's what I do, right? Aren't you glad I'm not God? God doesn't do that. Verses 18 to 20, tell the people, consecrate yourselves. Get ready for tomorrow when you're going to eat meat. You've been whining to God, we want meat, give us meat. We had a better life in Egypt. God's heard your whining, he's going to give you meat. You're going to eat meat. And it's not just for a day that you'll eat meat. 
and not two days or five or 10 or 20, but for a whole month, you're going to eat meat. You're going to eat meat until it's coming out of your nostrils, God says. You're going to be so sick of meat that you'll throw up at the mere mention of it. Can you, can you, can you imagine getting to the point where you'd throw up at the mention of meat? I just can't imagine that happening to some of my friends. And here's why. Here's why, God says, because you've rejected God, who is right here among you, whining to his face. Oh, why did we ever have to leave Egypt? The pattern will continue over and over and over again. The people will grumble. They will complain. God shows himself to be faithful. They repent and, you know, have their little party. And then a few days later, they begin to repeat the same process. Did you ever think that grumbling and complaining could have such dramatic effects? That's exactly what happens to the nation of Israel, to the Hebrew people, because they grumble and whine and ignore God. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they do not believe and acknowledge who God is. If we learn one thing from these chapters, and by the way, we don't just learn one thing, we literally learn dozens and dozens and dozens of lessons, but we learn this one thing, that God detests a grumbling spirit. God doesn't appreciate a whiner. Here's the big idea. Grumbling, whining, and complaining occur when we ignore who God is. When we grumble and when we complain, when we whine, we are doing just the opposite of worship. And worship is what we were created to do. It's what we were created to be. We were created in order that we might bring glory and honor to the one who created us, to the one who delivered us from the bondage, from the slavery of sin. That's what we've been created for. We've been created to worship. Grumbling, whining, complaining is exactly the opposite of that. And most of us, if we're honest, live much of our lives wanting or wishing things to be different rather than being content with the way things are in the life we have. Psalm 84, verses 10 to 12 say, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. The psalmist said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The problem for us is that we don't know what the good thing is. We have our view of what the good thing is and we think that that's the good thing. And yet God says, I'm not going to withhold anything that ultimately is good in your life. Trust me, I've got this. I want to real quickly give you four keys to contentment as we close. If you want to stop the grumbling, the complaining, the whining, and have your uh, biography written of your life as being a complaining, grumbling, whining person, here's four keys to contentment. You want to be content, number one, remember that it could be worse. John Ortberg, uh, an author, a pastor at a large church. By the way, if you ever get a chance to read some of his books, they're really awesome. He's got a book, and I believe the title is It All Goes Back in the Box. And it's really cool and got some really cool concepts and biblical principles in it. He says this, that whenever we're tempted to to think that things are not fair, when we look at our circumstances and believe that they should be different, we should remind ourselves of four words. It is could be worse. So some of you, just a few moments from now, you're going to walk out of this uh, room 
and you're going to walk out of the school and you're going to get in a car that you hate. Right? And the reason you hate it is because it's a money pit. You've been putting a lot of money in that car and you've been saying, God, why don't you give me a new car? Give me something else. <clears throat> and you're probably going to look over to the left and uh, some family's going to be getting into a new one. And you're going to be tempted to say, uh, I wish I had that one. And in that moment, here's what I want you to say, what my friend John Ortberg would want you to say. He would want you to say this. It could be worse. Some of you in a few moments, you're going to go home because you live in Cary, North Carolina. You're going to think that your house doesn't match up, right? You want it to be just a little bit different. You want new furniture. You want this. You want that. And you look at other people and what they have, and you're going to be tempted to say, I wish I had that. In that particular moment, I want you to say these four words. Say it with me. It could be worse. Some of you are going to have some situations with your kids this week. It's going to be a difficult week for you, all right? Whether it has to do with their behavior, with physical illness, and the things that you dwell with, and you're going to be tempted to say, God, why did you do this to me? In that particular moment, I want you to say these four words. Say it with me. It could be worse. Now, don't think that I'm oblivious to the fact that some of you are living in that place that is worse. I don't want to come across as insensitive to that. But as somebody that has traveled all around the globe, all around the world, we are of all people most blessed in this country. It could be worse. Secondly, real quickly, ask yourself this question, how long will this make me happy? This thing that I wish for, that I long for, if I, if I just had some meat, where's the meat? It's, all it is is manna, manna, manna. If I just had this, how long would that thing that you think you want, how long would it really make you happy? You ever wanted something and then got it and found out that you really didn't want it? And you're thankful that it's 30 days, you know, you can return it or whatever, Right? <clears throat> You ever get that new car and drive it home and oh, I'm in the new car and you're feeling real good and the next morning you wake up and you go, mm, I got a car payment, right? Ask yourself, how long will this make me happy? Number three, display a grateful heart. That's what the Apostle Paul told us to do in Philippians chapter 4. In fact, he told us he learned how to do that. That in every situation, he was going to have a grateful heart. He was going to be content. We're going to look at that pretty extensively in the months ahead in Philippians in our study in, in Philippians. Number four, ask yourself this question, where does my soul find true satisfaction? And here's the problem for many of us, just like the children of Israel. Our culture tells us that we find our soul satisfaction in the things that surround us, right? In the things that we have that we think make us happy. And so our culture tells us that if we have ease and we have luxury, we have comfort, we have money, we have all of these things that other people have which seemingly makes them happy that, that we'll find true soul satisfaction. The Bible, however, tells us that we find our satisfaction whether we are Christ followers or not. If you're here this morning and you've not crossed that line of faith, you will never find true soul satisfaction until you come into a relationship with God because it is God and in God alone that we'd find true soul satisfaction. And when we come to the understanding of who Jesus really is, we say this to you over and over and over again, and I know some of you can say, man, why do we get you? This is the same themes. It is. It's the same themes over and over and over again. 
when we come to the understanding of who Jesus really is, when we come to understand the pure gospel and what it really means, and, and by what it really means, I, I mean not just the implications for eternity. I think sometimes we are so focused on our final destination, on heaven, which is awesome beyond anything we could ever imagine or comprehend. It's awesome. But we forget that the gospel has implications, not just for eternity. The gospel has implications, should have implications in your life for today. Then we come to the conclusion that Christ is enough. There is no reason for grumbling, for complaining, for whining. When we get to the point where we understand that at the end of the day, no matter what occurs in my life, Christ is enough. Oh, would the children of Israel have done themselves a favor to learn that their one year at the foot of Mount Sinai. The Apostle Paul will tell us in his letter to the Corinthians that all of these stories we have, for what reason? As examples that we might learn. Sometimes what to do, very often what not to do. Stop grumbling, complaining, whining. Find your soul satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We've traveled a long ways in the book of Exodus. God, I I pray that uh, of all the dozens and dozens of lessons, certainly, that we could pull out of these texts and out of the life of Moses, I pray that we will understand, God, that you want us to have grateful hearts. That the exact opposite of worship is whining, is complaining, is grumbling. God, I pray that we would find our soul satisfaction in you. And that we would be true worshipers as we lift up the name of the one who loved us so much that he suffered and bled and died on a cross that he might deliver us from the bondage, from the tyranny of sin and give our lives purpose and meaning here on this earth and ultimately an eternal home in heaven with the God that created us that we were meant to be in relationship with. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.